I begin this morning with a story of a kindergarten teacher who was celebrating her birthday. This was a beloved kindergarten teacher, and uh, the students uh, who loved her very much decided that on her birthday, they would each buy this teacher a gift. They would wrap it and present it to her on her birthday. Now, this is one of those teachers who loves her students as well and takes the time to know uh, the parents of these students uh, as well as what they did, what was their occupation. She really wanted to get involved in the lives of these kindergarten children. So on the day of her birthday, her kindergarten class gathered and they sang happy birthday and it was now time for uh, them to present the gift to her. The first student, who this teacher knew whose parents owned a floral shop, a flower shop, gave her a present wrapped in a box. She held it and she said to the little boy, can I guess what's in this box? The little boy looked up at her and said, of course, teacher, you can. She said, I guess that this is, hmm, this must be flowers. To the astonishment of this little boy, he said, how did you guess? He was perplexed. She laughed and smiled and said, I just know. Your teacher knows everything. And thanked the little boy with a smile. The second student uh, came and presented his gift to uh, the teacher. And she knew that his parents owned a candy store. And he gave her uh, a box uh, wrapped. And she said to the little boy, can I also guess what's in this box? She held it and she said, I guess that in this box must be some candies. Again, the little boy was astonished and said, teacher, how did you know? She laughed again and said, your teacher knows everything and thanked him for his thoughtfulness. The third teacher, whose parents owned a bottle shop, gave her a box which was leaking. The teacher touched the liquid with her finger and, and said, can I guess? The little girl said, sure, and tasted it. Hmm, is it wine? She asked the little girl. No, she said. She put her hand on that leaking box and tasted it again. It must be champagne, she said. No, the little girl replied. It's a puppy. (laughs) Some of you will get that in about five minutes. Some of you just got it. Teachers do know a lot, and they have invested their time and their resources and efforts to allow students to be successful in their future life endeavors. It is baccalaureate service. It's baccalaureate Sunday, and we do invite you and welcome you, as I've said. Most of us, for most of us, including myself, teachers have had a huge impact in our lives. They do, when we were students, seem to know everything They've given you words of wisdom and advice, and I very much treasure not only our teachers, but my own, and I look forward this Friday to meet uh, uh, my high school principal, whom I hadn't met in 20 years. But this morning, let me serve as your spiritual guide, if you would allow, and let me speak truth into your spiritual life, as some of you are graduating and some of you are simply living life. You have come this morning as part of our church worship service, and we've been studying the book of Philippians these many weeks. We've been looking at the book of Philippians in a sermon series entitled, Life in Color, Living Joyfully in All Circumstances. 
And so I would like to invite you, if you have your Bibles this morning, would you turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter 4. We're going to be studying verses 4 to 9. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 9. For those of you who don't know, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this epistle to the Philippian Christians. He is the spiritual father for this church, and he is about to conclude this letter. And he wishes to leave with them some parting words. In these six verses, he will speak of three spiritual truths for them to pursue. If he never sees them again, he would like the Philippian Christians to pursue these things in their life until they see Jesus Christ. Life is short. As Eric Little says of life, life has a very simple plot. First you're here, and then you're not. So what are you going to do with the time given to you as a child of God? What will be the pursuit of your life as you not only graduate, but for those of you who are church members, as you live this life, what will be your lifelong pursuit? May I suggest three drawn out from these six verses. The first principle is found in verses five, excuse me, verses four to verse five, if you would look with me. Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Paul begins this last section by writing to the Philippian Christians, and he tells them about the importance of rejoicing in the Lord. In fact, this is the theme of the book of Philippians, finding joy in all circumstances. This pursuit for him is so important for not only the church in Philippi, but for us as well, that he repeats it two times in this short verse. This is the pursuit of an attitude of inward joy. It doesn't mean you won't encounter any problems. It doesn't mean you won't have any disappointments and, or the fact that you can't feel sad. But an attitude of inward joy comes with it an outlook, a life outlook of joy. We will all encounter problems, and some of you are encountering problems today. You will encounter trials and discouragement. You will encounter pressures in your life that you may not be able to bear. And that often makes it impossible to be happy. But note what Paul writes in verse 4. He doesn't challenge us to be happy all the time because joy does not equate to happiness. And happiness is not joy. But he says here very clearly in verse 4, rejoice, be joyful. You know, a lot of people go through life, and some of you go through life, faking happiness. People see you, and they see you as someone who smiles a lot. Life is normal for you to them. In fact, you make other people smile. When they ask you, how are things going? You simply answer them, fine, perfect, all is well. In our shame-based culture, we want everyone to think that everything is okay. But in reality, behind that smile is deep hurting pain. Your family life is a mess. You yearn for genuine quality relationships. The smiles that you portray are forced. Paul says in these verses, you don't have to fake happiness. Because note where the joy of life is found. 
It's right there. We often gloss it over. Joy is found in the Lord. That's an important preposition. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. In the Lord you find delight. In the Lord you find encouragement, regardless of what you're going through or what you will experience. And now you say, oh, Pastor, you don't know what I'm going through. My marriage is a shamble. I have a terrible relationship with my parents. We can barely make ends meet. You don't know what I'm going through. My friends, I don't need to know what you're going through, although I empathize with you. But how does finding joy in the Lord work practically? How about rejoicing in the fact that you who deserve death has been given life by one who has died in your place? That's something you can rejoice in, regardless of whatever circumstance you're going through. That the one who has died in your place has given you eternal life through the blood of Jesus Christ. That the worst thing that can happen to you on this earth is death. But at the moment of death, you wake up immediately into the very presence of our Lord. That sounds pretty good. That's something we can rejoice in. How about the fact that His grace is sufficient for you? And the fact that we don't get what we really deserve. If I'm honest to myself and I look at my life and my thought life and how I act and treat other people, I don't deserve any of the blessings that God has given me. And yet He continues to pour it out in my life and in your life. Can you rejoice that His grace is sufficient for you? That you don't get what you really deserve? You can rejoice in the fact that you know Jesus Christ personally. That He knows your needs. He knows what you're going through. And that with Him by your side, you're able to get through whatever circumstance is out there. Because He is able to do the impossible. He is the God of the universe who chooses to know your name. Chooses to care for your needs. And the fact that whatever you're going through and will go through in life, that His will and plan for your life is based on His unconditional love. Can you rejoice in those things? That's why Paul writes in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, Paul is not speaking theoretically. Paul is speaking from experience. We've already mentioned previously in the sermon series that he is writing this epistle while he is sitting in prison. He has suffered greatly for the sake of Jesus Christ in persecution. He has received threats of death. But in spite of these circumstances, Paul is able to find inner joy. Verse 4 calls us to focus on the blessings we have in Christ, regardless of our circumstances, to rejoice. Pursue inward joy. But joy is an inward attitude that may or may not be evident to all outwardly. Therefore, in verse 5, Paul writes, Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Joy manifests itself outwardly in gentleness. That word gentleness in the Greek is epiakes. It's, it's a wonderful word that has the idea of forbearance, if you know what that means. It is the idea of gentleness, of, of kindness, leniency. And here's a big word, magnanimity. The same root when we say someone is magnanimous of heart. It's in quasim, very big-hearted. That's the idea here. 
One who has inward joy will express himself outwardly in magnanimity of heart, in big-heartedness. This type of person who is epiakes is one who is considerate, one who is gentle, one who is big-hearted towards others. And the Bible says, the world will know about it. It will be known to all men. This is the outward result of inward joy. Instead of being mean and harsh, you treat others with kindness because you are content in your life with joy. You know, if I meet people, I can tell how their inward life generally is going based on their outward action. You know those types of people who are very mean-spirited, they are they're stingy, very unkind. I can almost bet to a certainty that they are angry inside, that they have no joy in their life. Because people who are rejoicing in the Lord will be gentle and big-hearted in their treatment of others. And the reason we can be like this is because the Lord is coming. The Lord is at hand. It's a reference to the rapture, the soon coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That joyful anticipation for all believers when Christ will come and call us to Himself. Now, let me put this all together for you, and if you're taking notes, here's the first principle, which I hope you will pursue, number one. The first thing I want you graduates and you church members to remember is inward joy leads to outward kindness. Inward joy leads to outward kindness. Pursue the joy of the Lord in your life. It will lead to a revolutionary transformation in your outward life. If you have the joy of the Lord in your life, kindness and big-heartedness will never be an issue. Recently, um, a few weeks ago, I was going to give a tip to someone, a service person, and I was going to tip them 100 pesos. But I have no idea who in their genius decided to make the color of the 100 peso so similar to the color of the 1,000 peso. Both are blue to me, especially in the darkness uh, of a restaurant. And so it is, I didn't notice, instead of the hundred peso tip, I gave them a thousand peso tip. Now you may think that I'm rich. I am not. I'm a pastor. I need that money. But what can you do when you have already given it to them? Do you ask, hey, can I have some change back? That wouldn't be appropriate. I thought to myself, what do I do now? And I just said, well, it's been given to them, so it is theirs. And I hope for their sake, this will be the best day of their life. Or maybe the best day of their week. Instead of getting upset, I'm glad that it can be used to help someone else. I'm not saying... I've got this nailed down. I'm usually a very joyful person. But when you experience the joy that is in the Lord in the midst of all of the problems that I have, you understand that generosity and kindness comes naturally out of you. And some of you, if you were in my place, would still be smirking about it. And you may say, well, you know what? Next time I have him as my server, I'm not going to give him any tip. The last time covered for both times. You know, we think like that. That's how we are as people. 
it transforms a person when you experience the joy of the Lord. You may think I'm not very good with money because it happened again this week. As you know, if you go to Trinoma on the weekdays, uh, parking, the flat rate is 50 pesos. My wife and I were there, and as we came out of the parking lot and headed to the cashier, uh, I like to lose a lot of things, and so she always holds on to the uh, parking card. And so when we came up to the cashier, my wife hands me the card with the money, and I gave it to the attendant, and then I drove off when the bar went up. And then she turned to me, and she said, where's the change? I said, didn't you give me 50 pesos? She said, it's orange. Blue and orange are not the same color. She said, not again. I said, what do you want me to do? It's, it's a ramp. I can't drive backwards. I thought to myself, honey, it's going to be okay. You know, I'm sure that cashier has had many occasions where in the accounting at the end of the day, her count was short. And we all know if the count is short, it comes out of her salary. So I hope that if in her count, at the end of the day, it comes out more, then at least she gets to keep it. I'm not telling you I'm the kindest person. I'm just saying when there's an inward joy in the Lord, it automatically transforms you into a person with a perspective of outward kindness. Acts of kindness and generosity doesn't bother you. And so regardless of your life circumstances and life situation, what does your outward action tell the world about your inward attitude? A lot of you are heading out to the outward world. A lot of you are already there. What does your action tell the world about what's inside? Paul says, pursue inward joy, which leads to outward kindness. Look with me at verses 6 to verse 7 for the second principle. Verse 6 and verse 7. You know this verse well. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Paul tells the Philippians in verses 6 and 7, they are not to worry. This is a, in English what we call it an imperative. It is a command. Do not worry. Now let me caution you here and, and tell you, this does not mean you are to live a carefree life. Whatever. This is not a license to live an irresponsible life. You still have responsibilities. Those of you who are working, you have a responsibility to work every day, to show up on time. You have a responsibility to prepare meals. You have a responsibility to take care of daily provisions for your family. You are to take care of children that God has given you. There are genuine concerns that are a part of responsibilities that God has given us. But genuine concern and responsibility is one thing, but worrying is another and here in verse 6, the charge is, do not worry. You see, Matthew 6 teaches us that when you worry, it means you don't trust in God. When you worry, you are telling the world that your God is not very big. That your God is not able to do the impossible. When you worry, 
Your God has become very small to you. Is that true? If there is something of great concern and worry to you, the Bible tells us to pray. The privilege of bringing our request before the very throne of grace, your concerns. Letting your request be known to God and trusting Him enough to turn over the issue to Him. You see, at the end of the day, worrying is a trust issue. You see, God says, if you're going to pray and entrust to me your problems, this is not a 50-50 proposition. It's not where you worry and then I worry and we both worry about your problems. It's no, you have given me your problems, you entrusted to me, and you trust me to deal with it, so you go relax. I don't know how many of you high school students have ever experienced this. I'm sure many. Your parents tell you, we trust you. We know where you're going. That's why my parents often said to me, Steve, we trust you. Remember, God is watching. Okay. Thanks for the reminder. And then every 10 minutes, the phone rings. Where are you? Who are you with? What are you doing? You don't trust me. In the work life, you know those bosses. They say, okay, I'm going to delegate this work to you. You got a day to work on it. Just finish it. Every 15 minutes, they come to your office. Have you done it yet? If I were doing it, this is how I would do it. You just want to say, you know what? If you want to do it, here, you go do it. I know that annoys you because it annoys me. That trust is not there. But how you are annoyed by that is the same way you treat God in prayer. When we pray, we entrust to Him our problems, but we worry, God, how are you going to deal with it? Here, let me tell you what needs to be done. Work faster, God. God may very well say, hey, you know what? You want to worry about it? Deal with it? Here you go. Once you give it to me, you sit back and you watch me work. Let me handle it. There's a story of a driver of an ox wagon who was on his way to the market when he overtook an old man carrying a heavy load also on his way to the market. Taking compassion on him, the driver stopped the ox wagon and invited the old man to ride along in the wagon to relieve his burden. Gratefully, the old man accepted. After a few minutes on the road, the driver turned around to see how the man was doing. Hopefully, this old man had learned to relax. To his surprise, he found this old man still straining under the heavy weight, for he had not taken off the burdens off of his shoulders. That's how we are when it comes to worrying and prayer. We've never fully unloaded our burdens and worries to the Lord. And I mention this because, young people, this is a lifelong lesson you need to learn today. And people of any age this morning, this is a lesson you need to start to learn. Is your life marked by prayer before you try everything else? Or often it is done 
after all resources and experiments have been exhausted. It's often the fact that we get so worried when we don't have to be because we've asked everyone their opinion and advice before we even asked out of God. We turn to Him in prayer as often as the last resort. Why? I never understood that. Even in my own life, it's a perplexity that we have access to the very throne of grace where the God of the universe wants to care for our needs. The one alone who is able to do the impossible. And then we feel it, the need and necessity to ask everyone else but Him. This is one who invites us to cast our cares on Him because He cares for us. This is one who says, Come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, for I will give you what? Give you rest. And in those great invitations, Oh God, you're just kidding. I like to worry. It's an invitation to dump our problems on Him. Paul uses four words to describe how we commune with God. The first word he uses is prayer. We approach God in the name of Jesus Christ, which enables us to pray before him. We don't have to go through a priest. You don't have to call me up. My prayers are not more effective than yours. You have a direct access line to heaven because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The second word Paul uses is the word supplication, petition. It speaks of requesting an answer to a specific need. You know, oftentimes in our prayer life, including mine sometimes, we gloss over all of our needs. And Lord, we pray, take care of all of our problems. Amen. We feel we don't have time to enumerate all of our problems. If you will worry about something for four hours and pray to God for three minutes, then those problems are not that big. Are they? Why don't we take time to enumerate? Because God wants to hear them, all of our needs. Leave them before Him. The third word is thanksgiving, which is an attitude that accompanies our prayer. The final word is request. The implication being big or small, minuscule or earth-shattering, definite, specific things we are to ask of God. When you do that, the Bible says in verse 6, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Do you want that peace throughout your life? Now you say, I'm a bit too young to worry. But soon enough, you will worry. You may be worried now about the school you're going to or the, the course you want to take or the job that's awaiting you after four or five years. Parents may be worried how they're going to pay for that college education. But the peace from God is an inner tranquility that comes out of a believer's close walk with God. The closer you commune with Him in prayer, the more peace you will have. That doesn't mean you won't have any problems. But as you go through life's problems, you know that everything is going to be okay because God has everything under control. Some of you may already be worried now about who your life partner will be, what jobs are out there in the future. But the peace of God guards, it protects the heart of the child of God. 
knowing that He journeys with us and that we're never alone. In fact, oftentimes He's clearing the way. You know, we're worrying about things we don't ever have to worry about because our Heavenly Father has cleared the way. He's plowed the trail for us as we come to Him in prayer. When you pray about your concerns now, whether it's college life or or work life, God is already doing the work to help you. Let me put this together for you, the second principle, number two. Overwhelming peace comes through prayer. Overwhelming peace comes through prayer. Pursue prayer as a lifestyle. Not the flippant prayer, hey God, thanks for the food. Hey God, help me pass this class that I've never studied for in my life. Hey God, help this girl like me. I'm talking about a substantial, genuine prayer life that you need to pursue so that an overwhelming peace comes in your life and so that you can live with joy. Because God desires, he, he wants to clear the path for us, and He does. I recently came across the story of uh, one of our young church members who's only in grade 6. He's a story of one of courage. I have her permission to share the story, as I do also her mother's. This grade 6 student does not go to Grace. She goes to Ika. And it's been the requirement of Ika, I believe, since its founding, that those in grade 6 who wish to take communion must go through confirmation class. Now, if you're not familiar with these terms, then we can talk about Roman Catholic theology at another time. Most all students, because of pack mentality, don't make a big deal out of it, and they don't want to rock the boat, they don't want to be on the blacklist, and so everyone just does it. They get it over with. In this time of confirmation, there's a process called recollection and confession before the priest. This young grade six girl comes to church every week. Being a Protestant Christian, felt that this was not something she wanted to go through with. And she built up the courage to tell her teacher or nun she didn't want to go through with it. Well, as you can guess, this caused the firestorm as seats had already been assigned, things had already been bought in preparation for this time that her mother was called into the office. Mom got mad at the daughter. What happened now? Why is there an issue today? I don't have time to get into all the details of the story. But long story short, because of the courage of this young girl to be true to herself, to be a testimony for Christ in her sphere of influence and in what she believed to stand firm, that instead of getting in trouble, the policy of Ika was changed to move the need for confirmation from grade six to high school third year, where then older students would be able to better discern. You know, sometimes we worry about things we don't ever have to worry about. If we bathe it in prayer, the overwhelming peace of God, when we do the right thing, is there because God is already clearing the way. Can you do that? 
Are you willing to be bold for your faith the rest of your life in prayer? Because you know that God is already moving beyond what you can even think about as the God of tomorrow. And that's why I love speaking to young people. I just came from retreat this week, speaking to another group of seniors. Truth be told, I like speaking to young people more than old people. Why? Because of the potential. This is not a rah-rah speech for you. This is the challenge of my heart, seeing in you the potential to do the right thing with conviction, with boldness, with gentleness in truth, bathed in prayer, so that you can rock this world for God. But the honest truth is we live so scared. You know, we're so scared what others will think and what will happen to us. If a grade six student can change the decades-long policy of a staunchly Roman Catholic school, think about what you can do. You have at your side the very Son of God who died in your place, to whom He allows you to come before the mighty throne of God every moment of every day to have the confidence to do the right thing. And that applies to everyone of all ages. Verse 8 and verse 9. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The final charge from Paul to these Philippian Christians concerns their thought life. Paul could have very well gave a list of all the things they needed to do. But instead, he tells them what they need to think about. Because the reality is what we think about, we will do. My friends, young people, church members, the thought life is very important. Because what you think about, you will crave. You will want it. I know I stand between you and lunch with your family. Some of you didn't have breakfast to come early, so you may be hungry. And if I were at this moment to describe to you, which I won't in full detail, the juicy, delicious piece of steak that I just had, so tender and succulent, it was a bone-in ribeye where the meat practically fell off the bone. The meat of Wagyu quality, so buttery in its taste, just melted in your mouth, cooked to perfection. And on the side with that mushroom gravy, creamy as it is. And another sauce, that red wine sauce, which seems to stimulate the taste buds of that wonderful piece of meat. I may have subtly put into your mind, dreaming about steak. 
I'm sorry, parents, but you may be going to a steak restaurant this afternoon. You're more than welcome to invite me. (laughs) But that which you think about, you will begin to crave. You will want it bad. You will do everything and anything you can to get it. Uh, This week, uh, I went to a new Taiwanese chicken place. I had eaten it at uh, Xilin in Taiwan, and uh, uh, I posted it on on Facebook. Uh, It's way out there in Makapagal in Pasay. And uh, I like to share good food that uh, I've enjoyed. Gave a simple description. Uh, And I was surprised a bit by the response. People were saying things like, Pastor, why did you post a picture? Because now all I can think about is that chicken place. Another responded, Pastor, I can't concentrate on my work because all day I'm thinking about going all the way out there and getting that chicken. I know many people that night after they saw the picture drive all the way to Makapagal just to eat at that place. I said, Lord, forgive me for I've caused people to daydream and not to concentrate on their work and dream about this chicken place. You see, the more you think about something, the more you will want it, the more you will desire it. Now, this works very positively, but it also works very negatively. And in all seriousness, that's why we fall into temptation. That's why we fall into lust. Because our thoughts linger on those things, and we say, it doesn't hurt anyone, it's only in my mind. A head full of pleasure and vices that this world offers to you will eventually lead you to act out on it. That's why smokers are waiting for the next smoke hit. That's why drug addicts live their life for that next drug hit. That's why womanizers and adulterers look for the next woman they can conquer. That's why those who are insecure are looking for the next person they can impress. And we call that addiction. The thought life of the Christian is very important. And Paul says, think about worthy things. And in verse 8, he lists six things that we should be thinking about. The first one is whatever things are true. That's the opposite of dishonesty and unreliability. Why is it in our culture, we think about what we can get away with, how we can cheat the system. And so the more we think about how we can cheat the system, we cheat the system. How many of us think about what is true, how to do it the right way? Because what you think about, you will act out on. Bible says, whatever is noble, it refers to what is dignified, what is worthy of respect. And we've mentioned this at the beginning of this sermon series. Respect is earned. It is not demanded. You cannot demand respect. And especially you young people who, who want to be respected by your parents and the outside world. You better be thinking about what is noble so that you can live a dignified, respectful life, something which is earned. Think about that which is right, just. It refers to conformity with God's standards. 
Instead of thinking how you're going to cheat the next time, think about how you will do it the right way because what you think about, you will act out on. Think about that which is pure, what is wholesome, not mixed with moral impurity. Young people, church members, what are you reading? What are you watching on television? What are you watching in the movie theaters? What are you filling your minds with? Because that which you fill your minds with, eventually you will act out on it. Think about which is that which is pure, wholesome, not with moral ambiguity. I see this in my kids. I'm not a mean parent, but we control what they watch. We know we'll never be able to do it completely. But while they're still young, we do. And they're at that stage right now where they like everything Kung Fu and Karate. And they love Kung Fu Panda. And they watch it, maybe because they see that their dad is Poe. I have no idea, all right? It could be it. But you know what? They watch it, and they want to act it out on each other. Now, there's no way we can control everything they do. And so we say, okay, if you really want to watch this, we have a deal. You watch this movie, you watch two or three Bible stories. If you want to watch this, you watch this. We want to try to affect their thought life. And that principle is not only for little kids. That principle works its way all the way to you at whatever age. That which you fill your mind with, the thought life that you have, will eventually be acted out. Think about that which is pure. What is lovely, the Bible says, something that promotes peace, a peacemaker rather than in conflict. That which is admirable, what is positive, what is constructive, other than what is negative. The Bible says at the end of verse 8, If there is anything praiseworthy, anything excellent, meditate, think about these things. Young people and church members, if you think about these things, you will learn to crave that which is spiritual. You will learn to want to do it. You will long for holiness. Let me give you the third principle. Number three, thinking about holiness leads to its pursuit. Thinking about holiness leads to its pursuit. Verse 9, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul says, you have me as an example, you've learned it, you've received it, you saw this, simply put, these do, do it. Thinking about holiness leads to its pursuit. If you pursue holiness, it will be there. There's joy in it. The story is told of the great Bible scholar D.A. Carson. He tells of a time when he and his friends were going to the beach for some much-needed Rest and relaxation. So much needed peace and quiet. When they got to this beach home and they wanted a, a weekend of quiet, 
It was shattered because they found a horde of college students celebrating graduation with lots of beer and loud music and, shall we say, public displays of affection. D.A. Carson writes in his journal, I'm deeply disappointed that my weekend relaxation is shattered by this raucous crazy party. I was getting ready, he writes, to cover my disappointment with moral outrage. I turned to my friend Ken, who had come along with me that weekend, to unload this spiritual venom. But as I approached him, I stopped and, and saw him by the patio, staring in the scene and with a faraway look in his eyes. And then he said to me rather softly, College kids, what a mission field. Put yourself in that position. When you see how the world is partying, what do you think? Oh, I can't wait to join them. I wish I was there. Or do you pity them and see them as a great opportunity to witness for the Lord? What you think in your mind about holiness will be what is lived out in your life. What are you pursuing? Does it lead to holiness? Think about that which is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable. You know, I can't tell you, young people, to be holy. I can't tell you, church members, be holy. That doesn't work. But I can tell you, make sure that your thought life is pure. Because if your thought life is pure, then the natural reaction of how you live your life will be holiness. I'm not going to scare you into holiness. There are consequences to sin. I'm not going to twist your arms and say that God will be displeased with you. All I want to say is if you think about holiness, you will pursue it. I wish for you the best. I really do. But I know in my heart, because I've seen 10 years of graduates come and go, is that the innocence of youth is often broken by the evilness of this world. My heart breaks, as it often does, when I hear young people and older people who fall into sin. And they so mess up their life because they will not heed wisdom. I do not take satisfaction in it. My heart breaks. And so I speak to you as one who deeply cares for you, as I do all the students and all the members of this church who God has called me to minister to. I can only tell you of how you are to pursue your life. But as a spiritual father, Paul entrusts it into the hands of of his children, I entrust it into your life. I will not call you every 10 minutes. 
I will just simply tell you that I trust you to pursue inward joy, which will lead to outward gentleness, to pursue prayer in your life so that you will experience overwhelming peace, to think about holiness so that it can become the pursuit of your life. May God bless you, and may God's grace and mercy and blessings be upon each and every one of you. Let's pray. Father, in the quietness of this time, I thank you for your word. Always a challenge even unto me. Look before me, young people, those who are older. We all needed to be reminded of this. That the pursuit of our life should be the pursuit of you. May it be this morning as the Spirit convicts, would you work in the lives of these young people, the lives of their parents, the lives of our church members, that they would make a commitment to surrender their life to you, and by doing so, pursue holiness. May the inward joy that comes from knowing Christ be evident in their outward life, May they all cultivate a heart of prayer so that they can smile even through the roughest of times. Joy amidst the trials. I pray for them and everyone here this morning the very best. May the pursuit we run be an honorable pursuit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.